Hello and welcome to the Everlifting Podcast. And today I'm continuing my talk with Manuel from Ma Strength. Uh, this is part two. If you didn't check out part one yet, I suggest you do so because this is right in the middle of our conversation. Anyways, let's get on with it. Part two, Chinese weightlifting. Enjoy. Oh, for sure. The volume and intensity uh, changes throughout the year. Yeah. So, uh, well, let's examine that a bit. How how do you change the volume in, and intensity throughout the year? Well, you know, if you look at the just the, the the yearly program, it looks it looks like linear periodization. They do two major competitions during the year, so they'll sit there and uh, go from some uh, some general work. And the work gets more specific. The intensity goes up as the uh, volume decreases, and uh, until you hit your peak, where uh, uh, the volume, uh, the intensity is really high and the volume is very low, and then you do your competition, and then they both drop off after oh. for recovery. So I see. You know, it doesn't it doesn't look all that fancy on paper, but what uh, what a lot of our uh, campers like is the general reinforcement, the coaching relationship that's going on throughout that, that training and the selection of exercises and the, how all these movements reinforce that technique. Yeah. And that's, uh, that's definitely my main reason to want to go to one of your camps. It's to, because you can read about a system, and that's great. I read a lot. But uh, when you have someone who is brought up in the system, who is an expert in the system, uh, help you apply it to you, then it's another level. Right. And so, you know, we provide the general example in the book. But, you know, the the way that, that uh, volume and intensity changes it's going to uh, be different for the athlete. So you might have an athlete that, you know, can improve, uh, can do heavy weeks, you know, like two or three weeks at a time. And then by the, uh, at the fourth week, you know, they, they hit a slump and that's when you need to uh, uh, do some recovery or just back off a little bit. Uh, you might have an athlete where, you know, they're, they're three weeks in and then that fourth week, they, they hit a slump, but if you push it further into that fifth week, they go up again, you know? So that yeah. slump, that slump was just temporary yeah. and they might be able to do five or even six weeks total with a uh, heavy weight, heavy training before they truly hit that, uh, that decrease in performance. So if you're a coach and you know that your athlete can only handle three weeks of heavy training before they drop off, well, then that's going to affect how you design your, your cycles, yes. you know, and how you're going to peak your athlete. But if you have an athlete that, you know, only hits a temporary slump at four weeks, but actually peaks five or six weeks out, then that's going to affect how you design those cycles for that athlete. Yes. So, so when you take a, a lighter week, um, because there's different philosophies on that. Do you drop off volume or do you drop off intensity or do you drop off both? Usually both. You yeah. know, they keep they keep it easy because you want physical recovery and also uh, mental recovery. 
but uh, it it also uh, can change uh, depending on your competition schedule. So I'll give an example. Uh, one time I went to China Nationals and Shu uh, Yong was there with uh, Liao Hui, and Shu yeah. Yong got second uh, that time. I think he I think he jerked like one ninety or so, one ninety five, and I think Liao did uh, like one kilo more uh, yeah. overall. And so, you know, he went really heavy, uh, for that competition, but about, about 10 days later or so he went to, Shu uh, Yong went to the, uh, to the Asian championships. So, uh, he didn't have time to, to recover. So what they did is they let, uh, they let him go up a weight class. So go up a couple of kilos. So he doesn't have to worry about cutting weight. And, uh, he did, some high, um, some high intensity, low volume work, but also just did a lot of power. And in fact, I think he, at that competition, I think he won just by uh, power jerking and power snatching. (laughs) Dear Lord. (laughs) Yeah, it was pretty wild. I think he, he did something ridiculous. Like I think it was 180 or so power clean, something amazing. Oh my God. (laughs) That's crazy. (laughs) You know, it's, it's like, it's easier than trying to do 195. Yeah. Well, yeah, sure. Yeah. So the, you know, in that, in that aspect, you know, he couldn't follow that prescribed recovery that should happen after uh, a peak competition. You know, they had to modify his situation so that he could attend this other, this other event, you know, I see. And that's important. Uh, it's becoming even more important now when, uh, since the athletes have to compete more to qualify for the Olympics, yeah, it's gonna be fun. It's gonna be fun to see how uh, training changes because of that. Yeah, so you know, some athletes, you know, they might still go to China Nationals, but then they have to also uh, adapt so that they can go to, say, Asian Championships or the World Cup or whatever uh, competition happens to be on the horizon. So, speaking of competitions, then, uh, do you have a typical peaking strategy? For competing? Uh, yeah, for just competing in general, where you just uh, want to peak for a meet, for anyone. Well, I mean, if you look at, you know, uh, the training hall videos for, you know, the world championships and stuff, you'll see the peaking for various Chinese athletes. And you'll see some go heavy, some go really light. Again, it really depends on how that athlete responds. You know, you might be so you might be wondering, how do you know that? Well, you learn that through communicating with your athlete. Yes. You have that training diary, you watch them train and you talk to them, you know, and you, you know, you try to find those moments where you're not on the same page so that you can learn. And that way, when you see your athlete, then you are on the same page. So going back to that example where, you know, your athlete might do a heavy squat and it feels like death. And you go to them and you say, wow, that looked easy. You should do 10 kilos more. And they tell yeah. you, no, no coach. That was it. Limit lift, you know, then you as a coach need to be able to look at that lift in the future and say, okay, I saw that lift. I saw the speed of that lift. I saw the technique of that lift. And based on how I've conversed with my athlete in the past, that's a limit for today. Not one kilo more, you know? Yeah. So these coaches, uh, by the time they get there, they've had this experience. So for them, it just looks like they cut the, the, the training off 
arbitrarily when really it's because they know that this is all that the athlete can do today without decreasing their performance. I see. You know, uh, every week the athletes go heavy. So they try to max out on something, whether it's snatch, clean and jerk, a partial movement, something like that. They're always trying to push it further. So the coaches have a lot of experience watching their athletes try to max out on something so that they can then use that experience to say, okay, so this is how my athlete looks when they're trying to get to that high percentage. And based on my communications, this is how many reps that they can take before their technique breaks down, or this is where they start to lose confidence or where, uh, uh, where speed breaks down, whatever. And now this is how I need to address it in the future. Uh, I, I'm always interested in seeing how, uh, uh, different systems and methods, uh, have things in common rather than what's uh, what they don't have in common and what you're speaking of there it sort of reminds me of something that uh, we always did in bulgaria and uh, it's every friday we have what's called a control training mm -hmm. where we max out and of course it's the bulgarian system so it's the classical lifts and what you're describing might not be the classical lifts but it's a similar principle Right, because you see, you're watching that athlete go to a maximum yeah. in whatever. So when you watch them, when you see how they treat going to their limit, whatever it is, then that's information that you can use for your coaching. You know, when you're peaking for the competition, you basically want to use the exercises that have the, met, the most uh, carryover for your athlete that makes them feel confident and use the small muscle training that they are still lagging or that they feel good about doing, even if it's not so much a lagging body part, if it makes them feel more confident, makes them feel swole, it makes them yeah. feel better about doing a heavy lift, then let them do it. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, it makes total sense. So you say uh, you max out typically once per week. Is that right? Right. Do you have a set day for that? Uh, so... You know, Friday is usually the, the heavy day, but, uh, you know, they try to strike when the iron's hot. So athletes have their own internal cycles. So yeah. if, you, if you're ready to go on a Wednesday, then do it. Yeah, then don't wait because you might not feel great on Friday. Exactly. So that's a, that's a missed opportunity to see where um, how you deal with heavy weight how you approach uh, the max, the maximum. And also uh, you might miss the PR. If you hit a PR that day, then the rest of the planned week, you adjust. You've already met your goal. Yes. Yeah. There's no need, there's no need to worry about, oh my God, I'm not following the program the rest of this week uh, because I hit a PR Wednesday. Nobody's worried yeah. about that. <laughs> no, no, you got your PR. <laughs> Be happy. <laughs> you got it. You got it. Right, move on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so when you don't go to your maxes, what kind of... Uh, do you use a percentage type training or do you just go by feel or by reps or what's the deal? Well, you know, there's different ways to max out. You can do a max single. You can do a max double, a max yeah. triple. Okay, all of those are useful. They all have a purpose. 
And so, you know, if your athlete is struggling with endurance and so they hit a, a max triple, that's still successful for that athlete, even sure. if it's not a max single, sure. uh, you're building up that endurance quality during that training period. And that's, that's, yeah, you always want the max single, but if you have that triple, that's still contributing eventually to that max single. So does that tie in with what you described earlier on the linear periodization? So perhaps further away from competition, you might go for your max triple rather than your max singles? Uh, maybe, but basically the coaches will assess the athlete before they do a program. So they have a lot of criteria that they follow. Some of these are physical, some of these are mental, some of them are biochemical. So they'll look at you know, testosterone levels, cortisol levels, as well as their total and what total they need for the meat, you know, and how their speed looks, how their technique looks. And from there, they'll pick and choose the most important things that need to be worked on for that upcoming cycle. Oh, I see. And then they'll choose the exercises that help get you to that goal and, and work from there. So you know, if you're doing, if you're working on building endurance, you know, you might be doing, you know, max sets of five, then max sets of three, then max doubles, you know, during your training cycle and not really focusing enough on the singles because that's yeah. a problem, you know, yeah. and then that will help you that, but those all still contribute to going to a single. Yeah, I see. Uh, and that's something that I picked up. I don't remember if it was in the book or I picked it from a post somewhere. No, it was earlier, so it was probably a post. But it really hit home with me that uh, because I think a lot of people forget that you can actually dedicate a few weeks or a month or something to one particular quality. And I think a lot of people forget that. They always think in terms of the max single. Well, maybe right now that's not what you need. Right. And you might be the type of athlete where if you hit that max single, you might be done. You might be wrecked for, you know, a, another week, you know, yeah. you can still do doubles or triples without getting, uh, feeling that CNS overload or that muscular overload. For sure. So what yeah. we do in the book is that, you know, we go over these various types of strategies like max singles, doubles, triples, et cetera. And we talk about the percentages that are used for those strategies, how long to use them, give examples of athletes that have used them and to inform your own training. Okay. Because again, as uh, you know, you might be somebody that responds well to doing heavy singles, but you might have another athlete who is wrecked after heavy singles. So those two athletes need to train differently. And, you know, it's, a, it, it's kind of a trial and error, but all training is trial and error. You know, the, what you want to do is have an informed opinion when you're doing your trial and error so that you're moving in that better direction rather than just choosing randomly. I mean, for sure. Uh, so your trial and error period might last for six months, but don't be discouraged by that. Because if you're following the wrong kind of training for yourself for the rest of your life, that's a lot longer than those six months of trial and error. Right. So, you know, now this process happens early on with 
you know, athletes when they're first getting into uh, weightlifting and whatnot. But, you know, over time, you know, these coaches, they've had enough experience, they've worked with enough athletes that they can then say, okay, as they start training and doing some trial and error, then they say, okay, I know what's working for this athlete. So we're going to start keeping that. And I know what doesn't work, you know, and then, but they are open to trying other things as well, because as you get older and your body changes, you know, you might be able to handle things that you couldn't handle uh, in the past. For sure. You know, you can experiment with that and see if it works, you know, but, um, but when you do it right, you know, it looks like what you see on the videos. It looks like, you know, that every, the athlete and the coach are both on the same page and they do the training and they do their own thing. And then they, uh, they succeed even if yeah. training, uh, even if they're on the same team, but train drastically different. Yeah. So I think a lot of people listening might not be a 10 year old Chinese uh, potential weightlifters. I, <laughs> I figure most people will, will be in a different demographic. So let's take someone, let's take someone who is 20, 30, whatever, want to get into weightlifting, but also has a school or a job or something. How would this system change for that person because i assume that the system can still be used right well you have to uh address the athletic qualities so since you haven't uh you didn't start out when you were young you might not have the athletic qualities uh that you need for weightlifting so uh for for some people uh for a lot of people actually you know flexibility is oh yeah key things. So a lot of times when people come to our camp, they're surprised at how much mobility these uh, Chinese athletes have. Uh, and that's how they're able to hit these kinds of positions and do these kinds of exercises because they can just move their body in those ways. If your body is very stiff and uh, immobile, then it's going to be, that's going to not only limit your technique, it's also going to limit the exercises that you can do and, yeah. and it's going to reduce the number of tools you have to build your technique up. So there might be some movements or some, um, uh, training arrangements that would work for you, but because you don't have the athletic quality to be able to do that kind of training, then you're missing out. And then you have to go to something else which may or may not be as effective. Yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. And uh, if you're unsure about your mobility, then uh, Google uh, Lu Xiaoyun squat jerk and <laughs> tell me if you look like that in the bottom position. <laughs> right. So, you know, you, you definitely uh, need a lot more mobility and flexibility. Uh, you know, we actually uh, recommend that to the people who are considering our camp. You don't have to be... Uh, a professional lifter or high level lifter, you just have to be open-minded and willing to learn. But, uh, we do, you know, some people will message me and say, Oh, how can I prepare best for this camp? And I just, I tell people, you know, get flexible, you know, if you're yeah. not already there, then get there because don't worry about, uh, training for the camp. Don't worry about following a certain routine or a program, just get flexible because yeah. that will make it a whole lot easier. 
Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's something that you can work on every day. Right. With, without taking away from recovery. So <clears throat> always work on flexibility if you got into this, like me, at, at an older age, because you need it. It will help you so much. For sure. It definitely gets in the way of a lot of, uh, a lot of Western athletes. Oh, yeah. Uh, and any other things? Because uh, I see, um, well, when I look at uh, the system, I, I can definitely see how someone who is busy can easily do this type of training uh, five days a week. So don't be discouraged and think that you must train nine, nine times per week. Uh, unless you're going for the Olympics, but if you're doing weightlifting because you love it, you want to go to a meet, I think you can definitely do this type of system five days per week. Would you agree? Well, I, I agree. I definitely think that this technique is most is best conducive for a lot of people because it's it's more in my experience, it's the most intuitive to to learn and the most intuitive to teach. I think uh, one thing that people struggle with is, um, it's just the, the technique. So once you know what, what it feels like and where you have to go, it's then a lot easier to pick movements and arrange your training to get you to that goal. But if you don't know exactly what you're supposed to do, then programming seems way more difficult. Yeah. I think it falls in, into place. Uh, like you say, if you, I mean, if you know what, what the lift should be like and you feel that something weird is happening right at knee level or something like that, then you know that, okay, I need to work more on the deadlift part or whatever. Uh, so if you don't have a coach close to you, maybe go to a seminar or look at videos or whatever. Try to figure out some way and video yourself. Um, try to figure it out and then I think the system will fall more into place for you. Yeah. I mean, this style of lifting really emphasizes, you know, body awareness. And so once you know where you are and where you're supposed to be, you will then get a better sense of when you're not there. So it's kind of like, um, you know, uh, like standing up straight, you know, if, if you're, you know, when you're slouching, you know, when you're not standing up straight, you know what I mean? Yeah. When, yeah. But when someone tells you to stand up straight, say your mom yells at you to stand up straight, you know exactly what to do, you know? And when you do it, you're not thinking about, Oh, I got to, you know, I got to align my pelvis. I got to flex. Yeah. Boots. I need, <laughs> That's right. I need a neutral head. You just do it. So <laughs> That's right. When you know what a good lift needs to be, then you will know when you are not there and you will know what you have to do to fix it. <laughs> That's right. You know, by the end, by the end of our camp, we usually have people and even their seminars, we have people saying, Oh, I know that wasn't a good one. I just, I did this or, Oh, I know I need to work on this or whatever. They start being able to know where their lifts are off. You know, it, it's funny because, uh, when people talk about this system, they only talk about it for weightlifting. But uh, my mind works like this because I've trained people from a lot of different sports. And I can see how you could apply the principles of Chinese weightlifting system to other sports for, for the uh, strength and speed parts, obviously. 
and I mean, it wouldn't even have to mean doing the snatch and clean and jerk, just the philosophy of how you structure the program, because it is about getting stronger and faster. So that's something that would be really interesting, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I would always, at least, you know, when it comes to uh, the technique, I would always defer to the coach of that sport. So, oh, yeah, obviously, obviously, <laughs> you know, um, but I think if they're going to incorporate weightlifting into their training, that's where um, that's where I, I could put have a lot of input. So we talked a bit about the five words and how that um comes into play with technique there but still there are other things that i feel are perhaps not specific to the chinese but more common to see in the chinese like for instance very little foot movement uh, you don't see a lot of chinese weightlifters jumping for instance uh, and something that i've also picked up is a lot of people actually use a fairly wide stance in the pool Mm -hmm. Yeah, can you talk a little bit about that? Is that something that's taught, or is it genetic? Is it hip structure, or, or is it just a, a difference in philosophy? Well, in terms of the feet movement, uh, that is more aligned with the technique and the philosophy. The point is to stay connected to the ground uh, as long as possible, because that is when you're able to apply force. Uh, the second that you jump, even if you're falling, uh, you're no longer able to apply force because you're in the air. So if you can stay connected and just slide, then you can make contact with the ground quicker and continue to exert force by pulling on the bar, by squatting, etc. So uh, most athletes I, will slide their feet into their uh, squat position uh, and, uh, in order to catch the bar and you don't usually see very much jumping in in chinese weightlifting so and we teach that in uh when we do uh, seminars and when we go to our camp and then in terms of the stance that's going to be due more to your hip structure so it just depends on how you feel comfortable uh in that start position so you know, if the, if the shape of your femur and your hip socket is such that, you know, you can't be very narrow, you can't be close to, you know, what would be considered a natural jumping position, you might have to go wider, then go with that because uh, that's going to be comfortable for you and it's going to be uh, safer for you. So you're not going to have things grinding in that start position uh, that can create problems later on. And that's something I also urge people to try out. If you've only ever tried to lift with one stance, try to widen it and see how it feels. You know, it's it's like squatting. Some people squat with a very close stance and their feet are very uh, forward and their knees go forward. And others, they need to turn the feet out a little bit more, stand a little bit wider, at, hit that depth. Because if you try to force force them to all squat, you know, with a narrow stance and their feet forward and knees go forward, some people will be able to do it. And then everybody else is going to feel jammed up or uncomfortable, or they're going to have to round in some fashion. And, uh, then the, the technique breaks down. So the start position is the same, you know, you, you want to be balanced over the same spot in this case, over the ball of the foot. 
Just like yeah. when you squat, your balance is over the midfoot, regardless of how wide you stand or how far you turn your feet out, you need to be over the middle of your foot. Right. So your balance point is still the same, but how wide you are is going to be more of a comfort and hip structure issue. Yeah, and that, that's a good way that you mentioned um, to see if, if you if your foot position is right. If you can, if your feet stay in contact with the floor the entire time during the pull, because a lot of times you will see people their heel will come up or their toes will come up a bit, then you probably should change your stance or ex at least experiment with it. Yeah. Uh, one thing is if you, if you do find that you are going to take a wider stance, well, then that means that you're going to place more stress on the hips. Yes. Start position. So if you have two athletes, one that's more narrow and one that's uh, more wide, but then that wider athlete is going to need a lot more hip work, hip strengthening work and choose exercises that contribute to that more than the lifter who's going to be narrower, even if their start position is the same in every other aspect. So what would be some good exercises for that, for more hip work? Well, you, you can do sumo deadlifts. Uh, you can do um, wide stance squats, box squats. Um, you can do some, some lunges, some lateral lunges, things like that. Yeah. just uh all kinds of movement just to strengthen the hip and um they'll do uh they'll even do uh deficit uh pulls where they uh stress the start position so the bar is not on the ground yeah you know and just to get them to feel the the muscles working and for sometimes they might do some uh, mobility work just to activate a certain cer certain small muscles so uh, we need to cover that about the small muscle, about the bodybuilding parts. Uh, do you have any preferred amount of volume in terms of sets and reps and how often you should do each body part? Or is that completely up to the athletes and individual? Well, uh, you know, they always do some sort of bodybuilding at the end. Unless, oh. you hit a, unless you hit a PR or if you had a very intense session, then... Uh, you know, the, the, the goal has been achieved. You really don't have to do anything else. Uh, so you, the rest of your session might be very light or you might just finish, uh, after hitting uh, a heavy lift or a new PR. Um, but if you're just training generally, you know, you can, um, you know, you, again, when you, before you do your, your training program, you have to look at the muscles that are strong and the ones that are weak. And so, you maintain the ones that are strong and you focus more on the ones that are weak. Uh, you know, uh, from a bodybuilding standpoint and a strength standpoint to maintain uh, an area is, uh, requires less than to build an area. So, yes, you know, you, you can get away with, you know, doing just, uh, you know, uh, two, two sets of a certain movement, you know, every, every three or four days just to maintain, uh, if, as long as the intensity is, is high enough, but to build it, you might need three or four sets and you can do it, you know, um, two or three times a week to add that volume, to allow it to, uh, super compensate. 
Yes. Yeah. If your if your triceps are weak, you know, then you might be doing triceps, direct triceps, you know, two or three times a week, you know, but if your triceps are already very strong, you might have a triceps, direct triceps, maybe once a week in your program. Ah, I see. I see. So to the people listening here, uh, if you think that uh, this extra work will make you for some reason slow or stiff, look at Chinese weightlifters. They're incredibly fast and they're very flexible. It will not make you slow. It will not make you stiff. It, but it will make you stronger. So That's keep true. doing that. I guess the last thing I want to cover, because I think we sort of missed it. Uh, when you when you have a training day where you're not maxing out, you're just uh, uh, training either variations or you're doing squats. Uh, what type of intensity are you going for and what type of sets and reps? Well, when you're doing, if you're doing a dedicated strength day, you know, yeah. you definitely want to go heavy for the rep range that you're trying to achieve. And, you know, there's a lot of auto-regulation that happens. So, you know, you ask your athlete, some athletes can do, you know, 90% and still feel like it's very easy for them. You know, yeah. they can grind those sets of three out every day. But then once you put 95%, it feels, you know, like they're done. Yeah. yeah. You know? So, and with those athletes, you know, you might have to settle at 90% and just focus on volume. Yes. You keep, you keep that intensity until, you know, their perceived exertion, uh, goes up past a certain threshold, you know, uh, for others the, you know, they might hit a heavy single and then you back off and you back off to keep, that perceived exertion at the same level, you know, I see. So if you do hundred, a hundred percent and that feels like a 10, you know, then you back off, say you want to keep things at a nine, you do 90% for maybe one or two reps. Yeah. And if the next set is say 9.5 at 90%, then you go down to 85% for the next one so that it can stay at nine so that your athlete doesn't overtrain. So yeah. you have to, you know, there's a little bit of auto regulation that goes in that conversation with the athlete so that, and then the, you know, the volume and intensity works itself out. You see how that athlete, uh, performed. And then when you go to do squats in the future, you know what your athlete can do. Your athlete might do four sets of four. Your athlete might be a five by five kind of person or a six by three kind of person. Okay. It goes back to that trial and error. I see. Look yeah. at how they respond best. And then your, pro their future programs will take that kind of shape. Yeah. And I think that's really the uh, common theme here that, yeah, uh, if you have a coach, the coach need, uh, and you and your coach need to figure out what works best for you. If you don't have a co coach, you need to figure out what works best f for you too, but on your own. So, um, well, yeah, you just have to be honest with yourself, you know, and you have to say, okay, uh, so say my program says 90% for, you know, three sets of three. Yeah. You do that first set of 90%, and it feels like a nine, like nine out of 10. Okay. But if that second set feels like 95%, then even if you did it, you know, that intensity is too high. Yes. So 
you have to be honest with yourself and say, listen, you know, if I try that third set, I'm going to fail. I might do one rep. I might not even get any rep. So rather than put yourself at that situation, go lighter so that it still feels like 90% still feels equally hard, but you get the work in and you look at, then you look down at your training log and you say, okay, so this is what my 90% of three by three looks like. So when I go do a similar type of workout, I'm going to follow these kinds of weights, you know, or this kind of progression, I'm going to do one heavy set and then back off five kilos and do two sets there. And that's my, and that's my rhythm. Yeah, that's always been something that I've had a hard time with uh, very fixed percentages. You need to be able to change it up if it doesn't feel right. Oh, for sure. I mean, the program is a guide and the coach is trying to do their best guess. But once you see the actual performance, you need to look at all of that and then use that to modify not just the next training session or the next week, but also the next training program. Yeah, exactly. You know? And so, you know, uh, all of this contributes to that long-term uh, development. Uh, so, you know, for, for male athletes, it takes about six to eight years to reach a world level. And for women, it takes about four to six years. And through that process, you know, they are using experience, but they are using trial and error as well to make that program perfect for that athlete. It seems like there is a little bit difference in the training of uh, female versus male athletes in the Chinese system. And I remember actually seeing, um, now that I think about it, um, a video clip of uh, Coach Mao where he talked about that. Yeah, and that's chapter in the book about uh, women's training. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's interesting because uh, I started looking into that with my power lifters years ago and I could barely find any information about how you should train uh, people differently. But you, you need to. You need to take into account the, the women's periods and so forth. There's a lot of stuff. Yeah, so, you know, we talk about that. Women have, you know, they tend to have wider hips, body proportions, they... Uh, different body composition. They have more fat than men, and that affects their uh, heat regulation compared to men. Oh, and yeah. It, um, and it also affects how much endurance they have. So, and you know, some women will be more extreme than others. Some women can train very close uh, to men if they, you know, uh, if they're very lean, and uh, you know, they don't carry a lot of body fat. And others. Um, you know, they tend to be, they tend to carry body fat in certain areas, you know, and then that's going to affect the, the level of fatigue, the level of heat where they feel and, uh, and then eventually how they train. And also, like you mentioned, the, uh, the period, you know, every woman is different, you know, oh, yes. that is a conversation that you have to have, uh, in order to see how she responds during that time. And then you make the uh, decisions for that. Some women uh, will need to do uh, light bodybuilding work, machine work, you know, and can't have any sort of, uh, you know, bar on their back, you know, and then others uh, can do it if it's partial. So they might not be able to do deep squats, but they can do quarter squats. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Others can do full squat as long as it's just light, you know. 
but it, it really depends because some women cramp a lot. Some women actually feel very aggressive and uh, uh, during that period and they, they can hit PRs and it, it's all over the board, but there's no, you know, you have to, again, talk to your athlete about that as variable as that part is in women's training. You can, you can, uh, generalize that to the rest of training. Yeah. And uh, I mean, uh, the changes in performance around that period, uh, it's significant for some people. Uh, and it, to both sides, because it can be that uh, for a few days, they're super weak. And for another few days, they will be hitting PRs like nothing. I've seen this so many times. Uh, so you need, if you're a coach, you, you need to be on top of that. You need to understand these things. For sure, for sure. So you know, it's, um, you know, it, it will do a lot for your training. You know, yeah. if you if you can understand your athlete and you know experiment and then work together to find what really works. Yeah. So, uh, do you have anything else you want to talk about? Anything you want to add? Um. <laughs> I'm not sure if you want to come to China, uh, you know, just, uh, send me an email at Chinese weightlifting at gmail.com, or you can go to, uh, Chinese weightlifting.com. That's, uh, the website. And, uh, you know, if you're interested in, uh, if you can't make it to China, uh, you know, we come to you. So we do seminars around the world and, uh, we teach, um, you know, Chinese weightlifting, uh, wherever there's interest. So, uh, done a lot in Europe, a lot in Asia and, uh, uh, the America. And, uh, this year, you know, we're heading into Africa and the Middle East. Oh, that's cool. I, I need to go to one of your camps sometime, man. It looks awesome. And uh, also I'm going to plug for you, go and follow them on uh, Instagram and, uh, because it's good stuff there. Yeah, you know, and we'll, uh, you know, if you come to China, it's fun. You know, you also get to do some sightseeing. You know, you get to uh, train with uh, professional athletes. You know, and uh, for you know, people end up coming back. You know, a lot of times, you know, people think this will be, you know, uh, uh, a one-time experience, but after they they get through it, they they always want to come back. So it's uh, it's always good to have people come uh, see new faces uh, and, uh, to mix with, uh, some of our veteran campers and it just, it, it enriches the experience, you know, and yeah. the language is not an issue. So, you know, um, we have translation services in Spanish, Portuguese, obviously English, and, uh, I'm working on Italian. I'm not there yet, but no, that's cool. So, but so language is not a barrier, uh, for China. So no. even though coaches, uh, are, uh, most of them can't speak English, the, uh, you know, we do translate during the camp, but we also, uh, but you know, they also now know how to, you know, they coach visually. They'll sometimes put you in position. Uh, they'll sometimes use a stick. Uh -huh, yes. That's how I learned, <laughs> but they, you know, the point will get across. So I don't feel, uh, don't feel bad if you don't speak Chinese or, uh, you know, if you're wondering about how this is going to happen, you know, we've done many camps. Uh, so, and you know, people walk away learning a lot. 
Yeah, and sticks don't have any language barriers. I can attest to <laughs> I, that. <laughs> universal language. So. Yeah. Uh, that's great, man. Well, I want to thank you for your time. It's been a pleasure, man. Finally getting to talk to someone about Chinese weightlifting. That's great. Yeah, I hope it was uh, informative. I hope it was uh, helpful. And, uh, you know, let me know if you uh, have any other questions. Okay, that's it for my talk with Manuel. I hope you enjoyed it. Man, I've been looking forward to do a podcast on Chinese weightlifting or actually to talk to someone about Chinese weightlifting for quite some time. Um, as I mentioned in the first episode, for a long time, we didn't get a lot of information about their system, but man, they've been dominating for a while. So uh, very fun episode for me to do. I hope you enjoyed it as well. I'll catch you next time. I'm out. Bye.